Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We're using the term gospel in two different ways this morning, and they coordinate very closely, but they are two different things to keep in mind. The first simply has to do with the fact that the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the gospel works. These four evangelists are called evangelists because they wrote gospels, they wrote evangels. The good news, the good news that the Lord God reigns, that the Christ of God has come, and that the Lord's promises have been fulfilled. That the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth has done the job that we needed doing. And that's recorded for us then in those four books. The birth, life, obedient life, the death, resurrection of Jesus, and his ascension, all providing us the comfort of the gospel. And that's to use the gospel in the second way. The second way is the promise of God that is there for our life, for our eternal life, giving us forgiveness of sins, the promise that we are not on our own, but that the Lord himself has done the rescuing work we so desperately need. And so in these two different ways, the first identifying the books wherein the second way, the promise, is recorded. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four Gospels, each recording about Jesus, each with some of their own unique aspects and some that they share together. So, for example, the death and resurrection of our Lord is recorded in all four Gospels. Each of them bears witness to that. And in each of them chooses to share with us different details about those last days of our Lord. The ministry of our Lord is recorded in each of them. And yet, only a few occasions are recorded in all four Gospels. For example, Jesus' baptism is recorded in all four of them. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's recorded as kind of play-by-play play as, it's, as it's occurring. And in John, it's, recording, it's recorded as a remembrance of John the Baptist as he gives testimony about that baptism, uh, giving us a good example about when we see things that God does in Jesus Christ, it's something to share, something to talk about, something to give over to his disciples and to friends and neighbors and for Honestly, anybody who's willing to listen. The feeding of the 5,000 is a, another example of a, an occasion of Jesus' ministry that is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record that particular miracle. And yet, after that, the list of things that appears in all four Gospels starts to get a little bit sparser. Because, as I mentioned, each of them shares material that they find compelling about Jesus so that you may have a full record of all that feeds your faith 
Paul that brings you the gospel, the promise that God in Christ has forgiven sins and that he now reigns. Well, where do these lessons come from? Well, in the hymnal in front of you, again, if you turn to page 14 in the front, and if you really are a fan of those Roman numerals, it's that X with the I and the V, that's the 14, and that is right in the front there, shows lectionary, three-year lectionary series A. Series A is the one we happen to be in, and as I've mentioned already before, on a couple of these occasions, if there's an A, there must be a B, and there is, it's on the next page. And in fact, <laughs> it's like the Ginsu commercial, wait, there's more, there's even a C. Three gospel cycles that bring us, well, what? Let's take a look. In the cycle we're in right now, series A, as we look down the far column where the gospel lessons are listed, there's Matthew, and then right around Christmas time, we have Luke and John in there. And then we have Matthew again for a good long stretch. And then right around uh, good, uh, right around uh, uh, Holy Week, Palm Sunday and, and Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter, we have quite a few John lessons jumping in there to give us that account also from John. But then there's Matthew quite a bit right in there too. And then as we look on the second page of the column, there's a few Johns, a couple of Luke's. But boy, there's a lot of Matthew going on there, isn't there? Series A highlights the gospel according to Matthew. And think about how I just said that. It highlights the gospel, the good news that the Lord reigns in Jesus Christ and has forgiven sins and fulfilled promises, according to Matthew. Well, we have B and C as well. What would you guess? You probably can already imagine what's going to happen when you turn the page. You turn the page and look at the gospel lessons for part B. There's Mark. Mark is on display. Mark and John wing the day, except for a few sections there where the familiar readings around Christmas and Easter find us again with Luke 2. And I mean, you can't have Christmas without shepherds, right? You can't have Christmas without angels. And Mark blessedly, begins his gospel right there with the baptism of our Lord Jesus. So there, there isn't in Mark that record of Christmas that we're so familiar with that forms the basis for our nativity scenes and so many Christmas ornaments. Mark begins right in the middle of things with God the Father proclaiming Jesus his son at his baptism. And so we import from Luke celebrations around Christmas time and so forth. And then there's a section in there from John, right in the middle of the summertime, where the feeding of the 5,000 gets elaborated on by John because John has Jesus' whole speech about being the bread of life as he unpacks that image for the people of Israel and encourages them to recognize that he is a greater man. 
So that entire package of teaching comes in the Gospel of Mark's year in Part B. Um, part of that, too, I suppose, is the fact that Mark is a little bit shorter than Matthew and Luke. And, well, you've got a few Sundays where you'd like to kind of pat it in there with some of John that you haven't had otherwise. And, of course, then in Series C, Luke gets the field of play. He gets highlighted all the way through. Now, you might imagine that we would certainly want to have a, a Part D where John could have his time. But, of course, he's been scattered throughout all the other three, particularly around Christmas and Easter. And most of the significant things, then, that John brings to the table have already been provided in those particular lessons. So in this three-year series, we get a lot of Scripture. We get a lot of Matthew, almost all of it. We get a lot of Mark, almost all of it. We get a lot of Luke all of the parts that are unique to Luke in particular. And in so doing, we have, instead of just 52 weeks during the year in which to teach the faith, we actually have 156. So all of that scripture gets laid out for you over the course of three years. And you can see that in the gospel readings, they kind of flow one right on top of the other. It's a continuous reading, especially during the summertime. If you go to the page where we had Series A with Matthew's readings, you can find today's lessons. Today is, what, September 10th. Yes, September 10th. So, there it is. About two-thirds of the way down the page on Roman numeral 15, the lessons for the Sundays that fall between September 4 and 10 are recorded there, and that's the ones we had today. Ezekiel 33, and Romans 13, and Matthew 18, part A. Next week, guess what? Matthew 18, part B. Not parts, not series B, but the second half of the chapter, right? This gives us the plan for our readings in general, and as we've looked at some of the other ones already, for the gospel lesson in particular. Now, as we mentioned last week, the Alleluia verse prompts us to recognize that it is our bridegroom who has come to us. We referenced Revelation 19 with the Alleluia chorus last week as the Alleluia's give us the prompt to lift up our heads, to know and to anticipate that it is now Jesus who's going to be speaking. Up until now, we've heard from a lot of witnesses about Jesus. We've heard from Ezekiel today. We've heard from Paul today. We've heard from the witnesses throughout history that have given their words about Jesus in the hymns and so forth. But now, now we have the first initial climax of the entire worship service. Now, there are plenty of pastors who, at least in the way they function and in the way they present themselves, that they seem to think that the sermon is the most important thing. I'm here to tell you that in the temptation to imagine that, they are off base. 
And certainly, it can happen to me as well. But the gospel lesson runs the show. All words, all words about Jesus are derivative and secondary to words from Jesus himself. Is that not obvious? Right? Anything that I can tell you about Jesus, as much as the preaching is word of God in the moment and in the flesh right here for you to have in your ears, can only be secondary and derivative to words that Jesus himself has spoken. Now, these records of Jesus' own words and deeds are the basis of our hope. And there is nothing that can compare with any of them at all. Now, I'm not saying that they are somehow more word of God than all of the rest of the books of the Bible. But here we have the center of what everything else is pointing to, what everything else has been leading up to, and what everything else flows from. Paul wouldn't have anything to write if it hadn't been that Jesus had died on the cross and risen from the dead and was already now reigning and working in the world through his means of grace from the right hand of the throne of God. Apart from that reality, Paul would have nothing to say. Apart from anticipating that reality, the prophets would have nothing to prophesy. So here we have the cornerstone of everything God reveals to us. And in our worship service, a reason for coming to confess our sins and to hear the gospel cleansing us of those sins is so that our ears can be open and ready to hear the gospel words. Our hymns that lead us to the font to hear from Jesus himself. They prepare our hearts and minds so that we can hear the word that Jesus is going to speak. The other lessons themselves point us in the direction to anticipate what Jesus is going to announce and what he is going to give. And so these trajectories lead us directly to the words of Jesus himself. This first climax, then, gives us opportunities to respond in faith that we will detail over the course of the next weeks as we think about offerings and creeds and every other way of service that is brought to bear as fruit of the Spirit from these words and promises of God in Jesus Christ. Let's kind of see how this works today. If you look at the gospel lesson that we have for us today, we've got 20 verses. And that's a lot to preach on. In fact, well, we're not going to try to preach on all 20 verses today. In fact, as you see the lesson laid out in your bulletin, there are places kind of that form paragraphs and places where there are kind of sections of gospel. In the way the lectionary lays it out, you have verses 1 to 6 form kind of a unit, and then 7 to 9 kind of a unit themselves. 10 and 11 are together as kind of a unit, 12 to 14, and then 15 to 20 take on another kind of topic. But all of them are related in various ways. The disciples' question prompts the speech that Jesus begins with. 
who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> and in so many ways, Jesus circles back to that question throughout his talking with them to remind them and let them know that the entire question really is off base from the get-go. The kingdom of heaven doesn't have a greatest that is going to be measured by any of the standards that they have in mind. In fact, all of the standards they have in mind, they've got to flip on top of their heads. And so in order to do that, Jesus grabs hold of a child and says, take a look at this one. With all of your ideas about what it means to be in charge, take a look at this one and learn from him what it means to be a receiver of the gifts of God, to be absolutely vulnerable, to be absolutely open, and to be absolutely trusting. This is the way it is with a disciple. This is the way it is with a child of God, to recognize that the Father has given me all that I have, that the Son has redeemed and given me salvation in all that I need, and that the Spirit has brought the faith to trust and believe those things by that very word. To be a receiver and to be dependent, reliant on the God who saves. To be in his hands and, and to be confidently in his hands. To know that there's absolutely nothing that can ever take me out of the palm of his hand. And that this child then not only becomes a model of that kind of faith, but becomes an opportunity for service as well. To stand then as servant of God and to then turn and serve one another. Whoever gives one of these children a cup of cold water is giving it in my name. Whoever receives one such child receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for them to be cast into the sea with a, a millstone hung around their neck. Reminds us then about the Old Testament lesson and how Ezekiel war, is warned by God that it is his responsibility to point out sin, that it is his responsibility to warn people of the sins that they are embedded in and that are keeping them from a full life in Christ. So that if they are not warned then and continue to sin, Ezekiel himself is going to bear the guilt of their sin because he didn't warn them. But if they continue in their sin even after he has warned them, then they bear the burden of their own guilt, and he is free of it. This identifying of sin plays together with Jesus' own words and gospel lesson as he identifies that we should never be causing someone else to be tempted, that we should never be the cause of someone else's falling into sin. But where in this text is the good news? Where in this gospel lesson is the gospel, is the, the promise of God? 
As he walks it through all the way around, he identifies a number of places where we could put a big cross on the side of our text. For example, when the word of forgiveness and reconciliation is given to a brother who is, who is sinning and they repent, then you have won your brother back again. That is beautiful good news, that the word of the Lord is living and active. But ultimately, even more so, the very last word that Jesus gives in this section, and perhaps this is why this section is so long, to get to that point, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That is the presence of God with his people, that in the midst of all of these ills, the, the concern for pride and being greatest, in the midst of the temptations that come and, and try to derail us and our prayer life and our living within the presence of God, in the conflicts that rise because of sin that need working out through repentance and forgiveness, when two or three come together in the name of Jesus, he is present. That this is the very work of the ascended and reigning Jesus Christ to bring these words of reconciliation to real people. This is what Jesus is doing. Think about a specific example. Matthew, the writer of our gospel, was a tax collector in Capernaum. That's where he had his little tax booth. That's where he had his table, where he collected the taxes. You remember who else lived in Capernaum? Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John. And you remember what they did for a living? They were fishermen. They went out they worked all night, they caught the fish, they put it in the boat, they brought it back to the shore, they unloaded the boat, and guess who the first person was to meet them on the shore? Matthew, with his little ledger book. So, guys, how'd you do today? <laughs> How many fish did we catch today? How many fish did we catch, Matthew? I guess, yeah. You've got the Romans behind you. I guess we did fine today. <laughs> Matthew, Peter, James, and John had a long history together, long before Jesus ever showed up. And yet, what's the first thing that Jesus does when he passes by Matthew's tax booth as he leaves the synagogue one day in Capernaum? Hey, you. Follow me. And what's the first thing Matthew does after he takes up the following of Jesus? He throws a party at his house. Now, perhaps you've gotten invitations to parties at your tax preparer, your IRS man. Uh, I, I think my tax man must live in Kansas City because that's where the, the check goes every year. I've never met that person, 
They've never invited me to their home. Never had a banquet there with my tax man. But, but apparently, that's what Matthew decided to do. That in following Jesus, the first thing he was going to do was throw a party for the people of Capernaum. The tax gatherers, the people who were cast off and cut off, and Jesus and his disciples as guests of honor. Matthew hosting Peter and James and John and Andrew. And with all that history, Jesus is able to bring them all together and lead them to know that where two or three or four or five or twelve or twenty or a hundred and twenty or a world is gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them, forgiving sins and giving brothers and sisters back to brothers and sisters because now they are in Christ. Amen. The peace of God that passes all human understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in faith towards Christ Jesus. Amen.